Can you give me a, ta- a countdown? Yeah. Go ahead. Three, two, one. That's so sexy. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so, hi. Hi. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome back. Yeah. This, this should be a podcast. podcast. I'm Jill Norton. And I'm Jay Boninsinga. And uh, it's been a minute since we've been on here. Yeah, I say it's that been every a while. Time, but we have legit excuses there was a plague there was there were were fires no there were locusts yes people had boils that's true passover (laughs) did happen but uh no we moved so we're in a really cool new pad uh in chicago and loving it and got all settled in and knew that we really needed to do another one of these and we have the perfect subject matter to talk about right so jay uh had a book that he's been working on for years come out in february and we're super excited about it and it's been getting like a lot of good buzz but we want to just keep the buzz going so i thought it'd be great to have you talk about the book and you know i read it and i loved it it'll be cool to hear you talk about the process and how it all started i'd be delighted this is like a special edition of this should be a podcast i'm just watching frida (laughs) eating our dinner yes this is a very special edition of this should be a yeah, she looks like she she should have a napkin around her neck. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> this is keeping her busy. So this she is won't. like her room service. Right. <laughs> All right. So yeah. So the book is it's uh, book one of a series, and it's called Stanley's The Devil's Quintet, The Armageddon Code. And I, I guess I, I guess you know you could say you know written by Jay Boninsinga, but it's it's written by Stan Lee and Jay Boninsinga. Uh, we can talk about that, but it's a collaboration between me and Stan Lee, which I never thought I would utter that that sentence. That's yeah. That's an amazing um, moment for me to have Stan uh, approve me as a writer. And I mean, it's one of the most exciting uh, moments uh, and gigs that I've ever been fortunate enough to stumble upon in my life uh, this juicy premise that Stan Lee had been developing over the years and had been searching for the the right novelist to write the origin story in prose before it becomes a lot of other stuff you know the iterations and media and who knows where it could go from here but well why don't you first talk about Stan Lee and just good how, idea. Yeah, some people well may done. not know ever, even though he's <laughs> extremely well known. Um, yeah, Stanley. Yeah, you're right. Stanley to me is like an American icon. He's like Joe DiMaggio. He's like you know Marilyn Monroe. He's he was born uh, Stanley Lieber, and uh, his family was not rich. You know, they moved around Flatbush and you know Washington Square and all the Bronx. He lived, you know, in several places in New York, but he was like a true New Yorker from a, uh, you know, his, his, his parents were immigrants, which I think is a, super important to his legacy and his, his body of work and his life. His, his parents were Romanian Jews who came over here. And so Stan was like the first generation born in America in his family. You know, he was a character and, and he had, you know, he had a knack for 
entertaining people. And, you know, he, even when he was a young man, he got this job working at this company called Timely Comics. I think it was a, officially known as Timely Publications or something like that. And that later became Marvel. Cool. But, but Stan got a job there when he was, you know, just like a teenager, I think. And I, actually, I'm not reading this from notes. I, ha- I have some notes in front of me, but a lot of these facts about Stan, they're sort of, it's like nerd mythology. Everybody right. <laughs> in right. the world knows these things. So I'm not telling any anything that people don't know. He took to working at this, at this uh, timely comics place like a fish to water. And he came up with ideas, and pretty soon he was, you know... He was one of the writers coming up with ideas for new characters. And, you know, over the course of his career, people don't realize this, but uh, Stan played a part. He co-created or he created so many massively popular, iconic comic book characters in Marvel, you know, universe Characters that today generate billions of dollars. I'm just going to read a, a quick list. All of these were either co-created or created by Stan originally. Spider-Man, that's probably his most famous right. character. X-Men, Iron Man, Thor, the Hulk, Ant-Man, the Wasp, the Fantastic Four, Black Panther, nice. Daredevil, Doctor Strange... Scarlet Witch and Black Widow. Wow, impressive. Yeah, it's it's an amazing uh, legacy, and he, you know, he he was he he to me personally, his most important contribution to the world of literature and 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 uh, you know uh, culture and media was he invented the human superhero the superhero with human traits and doubts and flaws and he invented pretty much the accessible relatable superhero and to me that that's stan's most important legacy it's hard to believe though disney bought walt disney company bought marvel in august of 2009 for four billion (laughs) dollars And, you know, it's kind of sad that Stan did not see, like, a huge chunk of that. That didn't go to Stan. Because that by that point, he had retired. Yeah. And, you know, they were... Basically, he was receiving sort of a pension from Marvel. And Disney went on to give him his pension and everything. And, they, and he was just sort of like, you know, um, the chairman emeritus for many years. Right. But he he refused to stand still, and he kept working and kept coming up with ideas, which brings us to the Devil's Quintet. Well, why don't you tell us how you got the gig? Like, how did how did that come down? I mean, it I, because it's... it was before he passed away, correct? <laughs> I I sometimes I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time, but other times I'm in the right place at the right time, and it's sort of like it happened to me on The Walking Dead. Uh, you know, I was, I just had, you know, I was, I just was sitting at home eating a cheese sandwich when my agent called. And at the time, my agent was a, a, a lovely woman named Susan Crawford, who was Stan, Stan Lee's agent. Right. 
and my other lovely agent, Natalia Aponte, <laughs> was uh, you, you know an associate of Susan, and uh, Natalia gave my name to Susan to give to Stan, and Stan said, "Yeah, this this guy might be perfect." You know, when he looked at my work, and he was in his nineties at the time. You know, he had had a rough final years in his life, and by that time he was. He was really hurting. His wife, Joni, had died, and he was ailing. And But he cared about this thing that he came up with, this premise, the Devil's Quintet, which we can talk about in a second. But I'll just say that's perhaps my work at, with The Walking Dead convinced Dan that I might be the right person. Because, you know, I remember when I first started working with Kirkman, Robert Kirkman, the genius behind The Walking Dead, you know, it was like, how do you translate a comic book into prose, into a literary novel? And one of my uh, ideas was, first of all, you do it in present tense, you know, become, because comic books are in the here and now. They're, they're visual. They're like, they're, they're more akin to movies right. than to books. And so all this stuff that I gleaned and I learned working with Kirkman, I think that Stan recognized and that was why he approved me as an author for this amazing collaboration, The Devil's Quintet. And that was the summer before he passed away or the Yeah, that was the summer of twenty eighteen. Right. And now then, as we're speaking it's it's twenty twenty two, so that was four years ago, which is hard to believe. But Right. But then you thought it was over and gave Yeah, that November he passed away. Right. And you came into my office. Right, I remember. <laughs> and told me, and I said, oh, God, that's so sad. Oh, this thing's over. And the first, one of the first people I called was Susan Crawford, Stan's agent. You know, I was like, you know, I know you were very close to Stan, so, you know, I'm sure you're really hurting, and I, I'm really sorry, and, you know, yeah, my condolences. And, she, and I said, it was fun while it lasted. I'm sure this, you know, project's probably over now. And she goes, what? And I'm like, well, it's, it's over, right? And she goes, Oh no 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 no! This is this is more valuable than ever now, <laughs> you know. So I'm like, oh okay. And then the, now the stakes had been raised. Like I was a torchbearer. I was a I was I was you know part of the team that was bringing this legacy forward to people. Right. Well, I read it and I loved it. Um, it was really one of the most. It was entertaining. I was just on the edge of my seat. I loved all the characters. And one thing that I thought was really interesting that I was, I always am thinking of questions for you when I'm reading, like in the beginning when uh, the team, and you're going to talk more about it, but the team meets up with the devil. And there's, so there's this whole interaction with the devil with the five of the, these SEAL team. And, you know, as a reader, you're reading it thinking, you know, how would this go? Like, are they, do they believe this or do they understand what's going on? Are they, like, it's the reality, because it's very much a reality up until that point. And yeah, then, but that's then, a really, that's, that's well put. But then, well, wait, but then in yeah. the next part, the next chapter, maybe, they're all in a vehicle of some sort and they're, right. they're kind of making jokes about it and kind of having a, did that just happen kind of situation? And then, that becomes relatable for the reader to think, yeah, what just happened? So anyway, so I, I just wanted you to talk more about that and like how you kind of brought these two worlds together. Well, 
the main premise of the story is you know there's this group of warriors you know professional soldiers three men and two women and they're very close because they've they were all in the same seal team earlier in their careers and then they became this ghost unit that was called when all else fails and they need this ghost unit to go in and take out somebody evil or um, at the beginning of the origin story, Stanley's The Devil's Quintet, The Armageddon Code, available at all your finer bookstores. <laughs> <laughs> they, they're they called on to just go to this um, very dangerous part of the world, find this warlord, and see if he has nukes. That's all they're asked to do. They're not asked to kill anybody or, you know... But unfortunately, in in the course of that uh, mission, they get caught, they get ambushed, and they're going to be killed. They're taken to a dungeon, and they're going to be killed. And right before they're killed, everything changes. This isn't really spoiler. This is just sort of the beginning of the book. This is almost like book jacket copy. And and the devil appears in the dungeon where they're going to be tortured and killed. And he says, "I I can get you out of this. I can give you powers that will get you out of this with the greatest of ease, and you can keep these powers. And all I ask, all I ask is that you do an odd job for me on occasion when I need it to hunt down someone who I have an agreement with that skipped their deal, their part of the deal, hunt them down, kill them, and I'll take it from there. Hmm. I'll damn them for eternity <laughs> after you find them and kill them. And so he just, he basically asks this, you know, super elite group to work for him. And that's the premise. That's, that's, that's what really sunk a hook into me because Stan had an eight page treatment of this. You know, he had the names of the characters, the superpowers that the devil gives them, and then how they react to it. And it was, classic stan because they all started like saying what are we doing is this real or should we be the thing that really got me and it was like i have to write this was one of the characters was like don't we already do this for the government right i mean what's the difference right i wanted to ask also i mean it's kind of along the same lines but that the whole similar to probably what you dealt with with the walking dead with you know, does George Romero exist? Do zombies exist right. in this universe? So when they see this, do they know what it is? Have they, does, you know, so same thing with this. Do superheroes exist? Does Stan Lee exist? Yeah. Right. So that's great question. Of- great point. Yeah. I've always thought I did it in The Walking Dead and I, and I, you know, I discussed it with Kirkman, you know, endlessly. And it's the same with Stan Lee, you know. I, I've always thought they live in our world. That's how you get a reader to suspend their disbelief. They they know about Stanley. They know about superheroes. They know about all the iterations of the devil. I won't give any huge spoilers. So, but there it is. There is a fascinating to me part of this where all these five characters have different religious backgrounds. So each of them sees the devil as a different thing. There's a, you know, oh, right. Stan Lee was was, cool. was a Jew, and he, you know, in fact, you want to hear something fascinating. He was once asked 
in an interview if he believed in God. And Stan said, see if I can do a Stan, Stan Lee impersonation. Uh, well, let me put it this way. And he had long pause, long pause. Is that really what he sound like? Stan Lee? What are you talking about? Of course, this is how he sounded. Okay, I don't know. <laughs> I'll take your word for it. See, I know Stan Lee mostly from his cameos in all his movies. That's so funny that you say that, because I was just thinking about that, like, oh, that would be a good question, but there should be a cameo in the book somehow. What, for me? Yeah. Well, I could no, be. No, 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 no. I could be the security guard. No, not for you. For like Stan Lee making a right. Like, cameo That's a great idea. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, he he was he was a he he was fun. He was he loved what he did. He he had, he had a, a joie de vivre. You know, he 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 wanted to be in all the movies as a, you know, just a walk. And he did a Hitchcock. You know, in most of these movies. But anyway. When he was asked this, he's, he, he said, well, let me put it this way. And then there's a long pause. And he says, no, no, I'm not going to try to be clever. I really don't know. I just don't know. That's how I feel about it. Right. I, I was raised Catholic. The Catholic in me is the 3 a.m. in the darkness waking up and being awakened by a weird sound that's the catholic in me i I'm, i still have fears and things that won't go away just just you know <laughs> this all sounds very familiar and our furry friend frida at three <laughs> o'clock in the morning who won't go away <laughs> <She's> <laughs> <laughs> you know there's the difficult part of working on this because it was a joy and, and it's continues to be um we have a four book deal with tor and tor is one of the great uh publishers of fantasy science fiction you know horror they're really one of the stalwart venerable publishers of this kind of material and so we're really lucky to be with them but it's a hybrid it's a hybrid of two different things that I've never seen before. And I think, you know, this makes it a difficult marketing and sales conundrum because it's it's as scary as The Exorcist. Gil Champion, who now runs Stan's company, POW Entertainment, and is uh, was Stan's right-hand man and, and partner, he says, you know, his two favorite books were and films were The Exorcist and The Shining. And this is kind of a combination of The Exorcist and The Shining. And I, when I heard him say that, I, I was humbled. But these have like com like funny lines, as great dialect throughout it. You know, it's not it's not all scary. And well, because the it's whole it's time. it's a hybrid. Right. It's a hybrid of of that and gritty military action stories right the dirty dozen and hurt locker you know it's really a, a bizarre hybrid i in, in fact i thought that i would read a short excerpt from it just to demonstrate for the listener would you please what i'm talking about because the, the thing opens up the book opens it starts with hyper realistic military suspense and then you have to you have to transition immediately to 
Beowulf, <laughs> you know, it goes immediately into like a mythic, dark, supernatural allegory, you know, with the devil. Right. And so that 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 is the biggest challenge is how to navigate those two opposite polarities, you know. But I think that's what makes this so interesting and so exciting to be a part of and, you know, so, I hope, great to read. Yeah, well, I can't wait to hear you read it. Okay, so this is how the book one um, of the series, Stanley's The Devil's Quintet, Armageddon Code, available at all your finer bookstores um this is (laughs) this is how it begins okay very i tried to just make it as realistic and character driven as possible chapter one over yonder at the edge of nothing one the c5 galaxy aircraft pitches and bumps over the jagged air currents above the vast desolate surface of the black sea The cabin smells of body odor and burning circuits as the leader of a small group of passengers braces himself against the jump seat, checking the luminous dial of his tactical chronograph. It's now pushing 10 p.m. Moscow Standard Time. Yeah, close enough for government work, the senior operative thinks as he surveys the dead gray slipstream outside the porthole window. As far as the night sky is concerned, he could be anywhere. On a business trip over the Pacific, approaching Hawaii for a long vacation, hell, the aircraft could be flying over the little hardscrabble hamlet where he grew up. But his true destination, known only to the other four members of his team, a pair of pilots and a couple of suits in the Defense Intelligence Agency is a territory in the Tartarus Mountains between Armenia and Azerbaijan that currently holds the distinction of being the most dangerous place in the world. Over yonder at the edge of nothing, the senior operative muses silently. He has a million of these colorful little corn-pone expressions that he picked up back in his childhood birthplace of Ducktown, Texas. A quacking good place, the man remembers the town's sign, assuring passers-by back in the day. A lean and weathered former jock, clad in desert camo and body armor. The senior operative is somewhere in his fourth decade, his jarhead buzz cut just starting to streak with gray. Each and every deep line and crease around his icy blue eyes has been earned the hard way in the field of battle, under fire, against the clock, balancing life and death on a high-tension wire. Many years earlier, back at Langley, the codename Spur had been conferred upon him during specialist training camp. In those days, intelligence operatives didn't have a choice in the selection of their codenames. But once in a while, the instructors chose handles apropos of a particular subject's skill set. The senior operative had a knack for motivating others. As in, put the spurs to her, Paul! The truth is, though, over the years the codename became the bane of his existence, an embarrassment. But 
That's how code names work. They stick to you like a blemish that will never fade. The man known as Spur feels the center of gravity shifting in the cabin as the aircraft banks over the craggy cliffs of the Balkan coastline. They begin to descend through an invisible chute of Georgian airspace, a sense of levitation tugging at the man's gut. Military transports approach Camp H.S. Sherman near the northern border at a tremendous velocity for planes of this size, much faster than commercial airliners, due to the constant reports of anti-aircraft guns along the Gehenna Highway. Spur gnashes his teeth as the monstrous airship slams through the thickening atmosphere, pitching and yawing in the darkness, The voice next to him sounds all warbly, as though coming through a tissue of water. Racking up the air miles, eh, Spur? Got my eye on that Samsonite luggage. The wisecracks emanate from the whip-smart Latina, sitting across the cabin, also decked out in camo and battle rattle, her raven-black mane tucked under her headset. Her code name... Pinup is an old-school reference to her traffic-stopping beauty. The moniker had been given to her when the SEAL team recruited her out of the 2nd Brigade Combat Team, 4th Infantry, 358th Police Battalion. She had been a nurse in the 358th and had gotten hit on more times than a punching bag at Gold's Gym. In civilian life, she'd been a working actress in L.A., had shot some national spots, done a few soap operas, but nothing of note. Now she uses her striking good looks and chameleon-like acting skills to get in places off-limits to the rougher-hewn operatives. Oh, nice. (laughs) Okay, I just should say, though, that Spur and Pinup, those are their code names, but those also translate into superhero names right and again i'm not giving anything away but those two are the principal characters in the story and they evolve in ways that you wouldn't believe (laughs) (laughs) i wanted to read one other short brief excerpt okay which shows you the other end of the spectrum of the story because what happens is they they're they're on that mission they land, they you know, they go into enemy territory, they they come upon the warlord's compound, and it's like huge, you know, Hyannis port on acid. It's got cannons and it's got satellite dishes and you know, but what they don't realize, what they don't know, and they won't find out till much later, is it's been equipped by a deal with the devil. So they they go into this area and they get ambushed and then they get captured and they get taken down into this dungeon and it is is in this dungeon that this entity appears and offers them a deal. All right. And it goes a little something like this. (laughs) Chapter 4. The Illusionist. One, looking back on it later, 
trying to recount the sequence of events, Spur will remember a distinct odor permeating the dungeon right at that moment. At first unidentifiable, it conjures odd memories in Spur's midbrain from his childhood, long summer nights back in Texas, the 4th of July, bottle rockets, firecrackers, and snakes. Those unmistakable smells wafting across the room as strong as a punch in the gut. Only later would he realize that he was smelling sulfur, brimstone, ancient odors from the center of the earth. Across the room at that moment, the three thugs spontaneously combust the fire igniting first beneath their feet, blinding yellow flames, shooting up, magnesium bright, climbing their legs like luminous centipedes, feeding on them, engulfing them, eliciting high-pitched shrieks of shock and pain from each of them. The fire hungrily gobbles each figure as though the thugs are made of wax and accelerant, causing each to stagger and spin in an awkward ballet, macabre pirouettes of sparks and swirls filling the room with the stench of burning flesh and hair, sizzling organs, living creatures cauterized and turned to cinders within seconds. At last, three separate columns of human-shaped ash collapse, and drift to the floor, at which point they are sucked into the substrata of earth below through cracks in the tiles by some inexplicable force, returning the room to its former silence as though the thugs had never existed in the first place. Two. On the floor, in front of the propaganda-stained backdrop, still on her knees, Pinup looks around, hyperventilating, her heart racing. The stillness that presses down on her at that moment is dizzying, the shrieks still ringing in her ears, and it takes her several minutes to gather her wits enough to even speak. How did... What just, what the hell just ha happened? She stammers and fits and starts looking around the flickering room. The sound of Pinup's voice brings the team back to their senses. Okay, there's, a, there's an explanation, Spur finally manages to say to no one in particular. Just to give me a second to figure out what the hell it is. I can't wait to hear your thoughts on the matter, Chief. The softly accented voice of Boo comes from the corner of the room where she's still shackled to her chair, trembling in her seat. Her dark eyes are wide and shiny with dread. Spur realizes that Pinup is still on her knees in front of the camera. Pinup, talk to me. You good? You all right? Still on her knees, looking around the room, trying to get her bearings. She looks a little woozy, soaked in adrenaline and fear. <laughs> Fantastic! <laughs> Never better, she lies, wiping a wisp of her hair from her eyes. <sighs> what just happened, Spur? 
And so now I've set the stage for this weird f- miracle right. to occur. And, you know, when the devil first appears, I mean, that, that was the hardest part of the, the book, when the devil first appears, because it's sort of like, you know, you're, you're, you're screwed no matter what you do. Right. You, you, you make him a human, then people are going to be like, yeah, no, this right. is not like the prince of darkness this is not the right. antichrist this is yeah no i loved how how each one of them saw them saw him differently i thought that was really a cool effect yeah i i don't know what even where that came from it just was out of sheer um desperation in my part as a writer <laughs> cuz i just i was just like how do I make this different and believable and have the readers suspend their disbelief? And, you know, I just thought, well, I have a group of five people who are all really brilliant and scary and d- dangerous killers for the government. And one's a Jew, one's Asian, one's Texan, born in a small town and grew up in Texas. You know, one is African-American, one is this former actress. You know, they all have like super different right. backgrounds and everything. And I, I realized, oh my God, they all, they all have a different cultural origin of the devil. Even Jewish people have, you're, you're a Jewish person. I don't think Judaica has a, a concept of the devil, but they do have a concept of evil spirits. That's where I got... It's more like mysticism, I guess. But right. It's, but it's not in this... I don't... And, you know, I'm an idiot, but... Uh, it's <laughs> <laughs> no, you're not. Uh, no, you're not. I'm, I'm a reformed Jew. Um, <laughs> but there, there's not a sense of afterlife... It's right. Not, so there's there's to... there's a thing in Jewish folklore called a die book. Right. And it's sort of like a poltergeist. Yeah. You know, but but I I what I did was I researched woodcuts and old imagery of the die book. That's a scary freaking thing. That you know. So I use that with Hack um, Aaron Borstein, who's one of the members of the unit. They call him Hack because he's preternaturally good at hacking into stuff. He's their cyber expert. Right. You know, you know when he saw the devil, he saw the die book. And you know, there's a, there's a character named Boo, and they call her they they named her Boo in SEAL training because she was so good at hurting people. And she would sneak up on people. And she was an amazing, you know, martial artist. And so they started calling her Boo because nobody could beat her in a fight. And she sees the Mogwai, which is this also just this grotesque, crazy image of a ghost, an evil spirit in that culture. So they all had this, they all had, you know, the African-American, his mother was Kenyan, and they had, they have an image of ultimate evil. Pinup was from LA, born in East LA, you know, she, she was born in the barrio, and she worked in, in the film industry for years before she became a nurse and got into the military. She sees like the Hollywood version of the devil. Right. Yeah. The slick, sleazy, oily, you know, Willem Dafoe with a pencil line mustache and horns. You know, she sees like this. I think this, of De Niro. Or De Niro, yeah, yeah in, in uh, Angel Heart. Is yeah. that what you were thinking of? Yeah. Yeah. Fabulous. Fabulous portrayal. Yeah. But most, most you know, modern, contemporary 
stories about the devil. They're like handsome. I mean, you know, I always think of uh, that movie Broadcast News and Albert Brooks is, is <laughs> Albert Brooks is saying, you know, their new anchor man is the devil. And, and Holly Hunter's like, would you shut up? And he, he goes, no, I'm serious. You think the devil's going to show up with horns and a tail? No, he's going to be handsome. Charming. And charming. And say it's all and it's all about sales. Right. And he's gonna slowly, gradually lower our standards. <laughs> that's that's a great line. Yeah. But I you know, I, I obviously and you're probably gathering I've been I've thought about the devil a lot in my life. Yeah. All right. Well, so you are hard working on book two right now. Right. And <laughs> book two is a complete evolution. It takes them into this crazy space that I really believe the reader would never see coming. Yeah, and that was what I'm. That's what I'm trying to do. Yeah, you know? there's supposed to be book three and book four. So, in your mind, do you already have kind of the story arc of where it would go past book two that you're? I do, but that's a great question. That's an interesting question because I have had quite a bit of experience working on series literature. I had my own series for four books about a FBI profiler, the Ulysses Grove series. Love them. In, in the early millennium. Thank you. Read them. Uh, <laughs> what? Read them. <laughs> but this is even beyond anything I've ever tried. I right. mean, this is because this is... This is real people and and Stan Lee heroes that are that have doubts and fears and they're they're soldiers, so they're they're badasses and they don't cower from the evil and they fight it. Some of them say, "Why are we fighting it? We do this for the U.S. government. Let's just go along with it." And the others are saying, "We don't work for the devil, right? You know." And it's going to go into pl- to really weird places that I'm excited about. And they come to me while I'm working on it. You know, I'm like, oh, my God, if that happens, then this should happen. <laughs> right. And I use the Bible as one of my resources. Like the you se- Like, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I use the Revelations. I use the New Testament. I, I use all kinds of stuff from the Bible as just sort of story fodder. <laughs> God, please. I'm glad I, you could, I hope you have a sense of humor. I'm glad you could put it to good use. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And where do you see the legacy of the Devil's Quintet in five years? Wow, that's a great, great question. We have so many opportunities that are coming to us. You know, we have a group of people who are starting to develop this as a TV series. And they are the absolute pinnacle of creative people in television. I don't know how much more I can say about it at this stage, but I'm devoted to it mostly because it's a legacy project for Stan Lee. He deserves to have a great team working on this. It's not a easy pitch or sell. Right. It's complex. So I think that it's going to be a sleeper blockbuster. I, that's my prediction. And you can... Yeah. It's on tape now. Oh, tape. wait. We don't use tape anymore. <laughs> it's, uh-huh. on, it's on uh, wax. Oh, wait. Wait. I don't know. That's not... Uh, it's in the uh, cloud. 
<laughs> well, that's very cool. It's also very exciting. And uh, I just want everyone to read it. Thank you. Thank yes. you for those softball questions. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> All right. So for now, we'll we'll definitely uh, follow up with this when we get to book two. But I'm sure we'll be back as uh, with a regular podcast theme coming up pretty soon. And you bet uh, as soon as we can, we we miss doing this. So and check out the first book, Stan Lee's The Devil's Quintet: The Armageddon Code, from Tor Books, available everywhere. Yeah, you uh, go to jbonandsinga.com and you will find <laughs> everything you need. Right. All right. Well, with that, I guess uh, see you soon. See you soon. Love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. The music for This Should Be a Podcast is Closed Shave by The Riptones. And you can find their Roadhouse Country Music 24-7 on Spotify.